The sermon text this morning is Psalm 44. O oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your right arm, and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes, through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever, Selah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to, the foreign, to a foreign God, would, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Well, church, another light psalm on... (laughs) Um, this is the third psalm of eight psalms in a row that will be Daniel, Philip, and I will be preaching. So we started with Psalm 42, then we got to Psalm 43 last week, and now we have Psalm 44. Um, just so you're aware, again, of the intentionality of, in the arrangement of the book of Psalms, Psalm 42 Uh, was a psalm for the downcast soul, a soul that is feeling a lot of anxiety, a soul that is in turmoil, perhaps depressed. And then Psalm 43 is very similar to Psalm 42. It even has the same uh, uh, chorus. Uh, But it's slightly more hope in Psalm 43. It starts out with, vindicate me, O God. And then in Psalm 44, we have sort of a pivot Um, here's a way that you can picture the ordering of these psalms. Uh, Psalm 42 is like a man laying in his bed where his tears are his food day and night. 
and he, all he can do is get up to go to the bathroom and maybe a quick bite to eat. Then he's back in bed, just lingering there. And then Psalm 43, the man has enough strength and faith to sit up in his bed. Uh, but his hands are, 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 his face is in his hands. He's just on the edge of the bed. Psalm 44, the man is up, he's pacing around the house, and he's lamenting and arguing his case to God. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if you've been there at all in your life. I wonder how many of you are there right now. In this psalm, we don't quite see the answer to the prayer that I will once again praise God that we saw in 42 and 43. But he's got more of a fight in him. The answer comes in Psalm 45, but we're still in Psalm 44. But we're Christians and we know how to read our Bibles. But he's got more of a fight in him and he speaks to God in ways that you won't find in any other religion. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, and you're interested in Christianity, you can't find a major world religion that speaks to God like this. So here's my plea to you if you're here and you're not yet a Christian. This Bible is unique, and I think its uniqueness calls you to examine it. You won't find any other religion, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, that speaks to God like this. And this morning, what I want to persuade you, Christian, from the Psalms that God's love is providentially working in you, even when his providence is puzzling. That God's love is providentially working in you, even when his providence is puzzling. When I use the word providence, here's what I mean. The word providence uh, it came into be popular amongst Christians in the 12th century. Uh, and then it really sped up during the Reformation. It was a lot more common, and especially among uh, a group of people called the Puritans. Providence is a very simple uh, construction. Pro means, pro means in front of or before of. Uh, the VID uh, to see. So think of video, something we watch. Um, it comes from the Latin word videre. So it's in a way, it's, it's forward in space and time. It's, it's providence is God's good planning and his foresight for his people. So when I say the word providence, God's good planning and foresight for his people. Theologians use it in positive terms, and that's how we'll be using it as well. Sermon has four points. I'll give them to you now. First, God's powerful providence. Second, God's bitter providence. Third, God's mysterious providence. And fourth, God's loving providence. Powerful, bitter, mysterious, and loving. First, let's look at verses 1 to 8, God's powerful providence. Uh, in verses 1 to 8, there is a reflection on God's history of salvation for his people. Look at verse 1. He addresses God and he remembers what God, what he has heard from his forefathers. He says, the deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old, 
And now we see just what he's reflecting on from the days of old. Look at verse 2. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations. But them, that is my forefathers, Israel, you planted. You afflicted the people, but them you set free. He's saying, Lord, you showed favor on your people, and you fought against the enemies of your people. And then verse 3 makes it clear that any victory in the past was of God. So whether he's talking about the Exodus, whether he's talking about the conquest of Canaan, any victory, it was God's. Not of their own strength. For, for not by their own sword, not, to, not to, by they, their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. So we don't, we're not given the specific situation that he's writing about. He's recalling God's past power on behalf of his people. We know that much. And the psalmist knows that any victory that came was a victory brought on by the Lord. He's been taught well. This is the God who brought salvation to Noah and his family when the earth was flooded. This is the God that powerfully gave a child to Sarah in her old age and to save the promise. This is a God who rescued Joseph. This is a God who powerfully sent plagues to Egypt and saved his people from enslavement. This is the God who powerfully parted the Red Sea and saved his people from certain annihilation. In Joshua 24, God sends hornets to take down the enemies of his people. And it's very clear in that text that this is God's doing. God brought victory through David, though he was not a physical match for Goliath. He saved Jonah from the powerful sea through a whale. He saved Daniel from destruction in the lion's den. In the past, God displays his power through saving his people from what otherwise would be certain death or annihilation. What is possible, what is impossible with man is possible with God. This is the theology of the psalmist in verses 1 to 8. Even if man takes up the sword, even if man takes up the bow, it is God who grants the victory. So verses 6 to 8. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. You see, the psalmist has some really good theology about the sovereignty of God. Even though I picked up the bow, even though I aimed, God, you directed the path of the arrow. The psalmist hasn't lost his marbles. He knows how big God is. How good God has been to his people. The psalmist has not forgotten the things of God. And this is anchoring him in this puzzling providence he finds himself in. Uh, friends, all this is to show that God is behind the victories. He often saved his people in unlikely ways so that his hand would be seen as powerful and his ways as glorious. So that his people would not put their trust in their bows or their chariots or their swords. And in false gods so that they would trust him for his providential power to save them and to bless them. 
Church, this is important for us to remember God's past. What he has done in the lives of his people from the beginning. It's important for us to remember because when his providence is puzzling, his past power can anchor your souls in the most turbulent and confusing of trials. You know what I'm saying? Like, Lord, what are you doing? I have no idea what you're doing. I know what you've done in the past. So I know I can trust you now. That's what he's saying here. And that's what he's setting up. This is what God tells his people to do uh, in Deuteronomy 6, right before he's going to give them the land of Canaan. Uh, he says this. He, he says, he tells, uh, sorry, he tells uh, the parents of the Israelites to keep telling the children about what he's done in the past. So Deuteronomy 6.20, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. The Lord wants his people to keep telling, testifying, witnessing to what he's done in the past. So parents, how can you teach God's past powerful providence to your own children? Have you been telling them or how can you tell them what God has done in your life? Do you speak about this to your children? I wonder if you've ever pontificated with your own kids what you would be like if you weren't saved. <laughs> you ever done that? You've got to be careful. It can be a bit of an excuse when, in, in turbulent times in the household. But it's kind of like, you know, I, you think I'm bad now. Just imagine if I didn't <laughs> know Jesus. <laughs> Please don't manipulate that to your advantage. But it's true, isn't it? I'm a lot better now than I would have been, thanks to God's power. It's no excuse for sin. Testify to the Lord's goodness. Your own kids, they just see you as a Christian. If you became a Christian before they were born, they don't know what you were like. So don't glorify your sin, but tell them how God has changed your life. Make a habit of that. As a church, let's speak about this to one another. Testify to his power in your life when it comes to past prayers that were answered, when it comes to sin patterns that have been changed, when it comes to a growing heart of love for God's people and for a lost world, when you see more fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. Church, let's tell one another about what God is doing in our lives. It's so tempting, right? The service ends. How are you doing? How was your week? It was fine. How was yours? Ah, no, like someone tell me something good about what the Lord is doing. Make it awkward. Of course it's awkward. We don't normally do this, but Christians are awkward people. <laughs> Talk about the Lord and what he's doing in your lives. We need to do this in part because of what comes next in verse 9. This is the pivot of all pivots in the Bible. In basketball, if you want to be quick, you have to develop a really good pivot move. 
That means when you're, when you're standing here and you kind of sweep the ball here, you do a 180 like this. You got to do it fast. And you're a triple threat. You can pass, you can shoot, you can dribble. This is a pivot right here, and it's quick. See the preposition there, but. Might be more helpful to say, however. This is our second point. God's bitter providence. Verses 9 to 16. The psalmist is, in essence, saying, Despite what I've heard about you all my life, despite how I have believed you, you are now rejecting us. You have disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. And not only are we powerless in attaining victory, we're getting run over. The ones that hate us are prospering. In this portion of the text, there's this battle language. In 10, his enemies get the spoils of the war. Not only are they defeating them, they're ransacking their homes. And then he keeps going. He now blames God for making them like sheep that are led to the slaughter. You see the pivot there? God, you are powerful. You are victorious. You're the God of my salvation. I praise you. I'm like sheep to slaughter, and you're the one leading me to there. One way to, to sum up this section of, of, or to look at this section in God's bitter providence is we see the bitter providences in three kinds of ways. One, it's bitter because it tastes like death. It's bitter because it takes, tastes like death. Look at verses 9 and 11. You've rejected us, disgraced us. You haven't gone out with our armies. You've made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten the spoil. You've made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. So just picture, so what poetry does, it gives you images so that you can picture what's going on here. So picture a sheep, not a lion, not a grizzly bear, a sheep, one of the most defenseless animals in the world. But this sheep is captured and is being led to be killed. When we lived in Turkey, uh, one of uh, an annual uh, holiday they have is called Kurban Bayram, sacrifice holiday. And all throughout uh, the week, there are these sheep that are being lined up. And I remember I was going to the bazaar one day, which is, and it just, it reeked. And they had all these sheep, and they would slaughter the sheep right, right there. And the sheep were helpless. They couldn't do anything, right? What are they going to do? Talk to each other? Revolt? Uh, they couldn't. They had ropes around their necks, and they were just waiting in line to be slaughtered and to be sacrificed. Well, that's the picture given here. This is how the psalmist feels. It tastes like death, what I'm going through, Lord. Well, secondly, God's, bitter is, God's providence is bitter because they're ashamed. They're embarrassed. Look at verses 12 to 16. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price. Not only are we sold, we're cheap. <laughs> Verse 13, you've made us a taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. 
They're being mocked. They're being reviled. Verse 14, you've made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. His providence is bitter because they're ashamed, they're embarrassed, they're disgraced. They're being mocked and reviled. They're being laughed at. And remember, this is God's covenant people treated like this. The king of kings, the ancient of days that we just sang about. This is who he's talking to. You can picture the psalmist who clearly knows his Bible very well. He's thinking back to the promise of Abraham that they'd be a blessing to all the nations through the seed of Abraham. And then there's Isaac and then there's Jacob and his, and his 12 sons. There'd be this mighty nation that would be a light unto the Gentiles. You want to see what Yahweh is like? Come and see, come to the temple, come behold the Lord, our God. But now being laughed at God's own people. Do you see the tension here, church? God, you've given us a promise to uh, uh, the fo- our forefathers that redemption would come through you into the world. But now we are not a blessing to the nations. We're a byword to the nations, a laughing stock. We're taunted and we're reviled. So it's bitter because it's like death. It's bitter because they're ashamed. Thirdly, God's providence is bitter here because it comes from God. Look at verse 9. I don't know if your Bible does this for you. But there's this repetition with each verse, right? Look at verse 9. But you have rejected us. Verse 10. You have made us turn back from the foe. Verse 11, you have made us like sheep for slaughter. Verse 12, you have sold your people for a trifle. Verse 13, you have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. And verse 14, you have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among peoples. Wow. God's providence It's bitter here because it comes from his hand. Remember Psalm 42 a couple weeks ago? Who did he attribute the waterfalls and the heavy waves breaking over his head to? He said, your breakers, your waterfalls have come over me. Church, this is hard. The circumstances have not been bad luck. There hasn't been happenstance. There hasn't been oopsie daisies. It's not even quid pro quo, cause and effect. This is hard to understand. But friend, let's trust the Lord here. Charles Spurgeon, in talking about his own bitter providences in his life, he says this. So far as personal sorrows are concerned, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me 
by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. Oh, that were bitterness indeed. But on the contrary, the prophet here sees the hand of God in all his trials. And I pray that you and I may do the same. May we see that our heavenly father fills the cup with loving tenderness and holds it out and says, drink my child, bitter as it is. It is a love potion, which is meant to do the permanent good. That takes faith. That takes Holy Spirit given faith. It was an interesting church. I was listening to, uh, I preached Psalm 44 like a little over five years ago. And uh, I didn't have my manuscript, um, but I went to go listen to it. And as I'm listening to it, I say to the church, I say, um, let me read you a quote by someone named Vanitha Risner. (laughs) And in God's providence, here I am five years later. And I know Vanitha and I love Vanitha. And I didn't mispronounce her name this time, Vanitha Risner. So I'm going to quote her to you. Same quote I used five years ago. This is, if you know our dear sister Vanitha, she's had some... um, bitter providences in her life. And she's a testimony to God's grace in her life. And she says this, in my own life, through the lens of scripture, I can see that God has brought the greatest good out of the hardest events. (laughs) Here's a key. But I say that in retrospect. At the time, none of my suffering felt even vaguely positive. Sobbing by my own son's tiniest casket was devastating. Receiving the divorce papers in the mail was beyond heartbreaking. Hearing the doctors say that my body was deteriorating and then watching it happen was agonizing. None of these trials felt redemptive. Keyword there. None of these trials felt redemptive. None of them could be celebrated. None of them even made sense. I never could have imagined that God would bring something beautiful out of my pain. I felt that my pain was deforming me, that I would forever be marred by it. I was sure my best years were behind me before this happened. When I laughed easily and often, when I wasn't burdened with the memories of all that had gone before, William Cooper is a hymn writer who wrote hundreds of hymns. He was one of his closest friends, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. Um, He struggled with depression his whole life. In fact, when he wrote this hymn, I'm about to read a portion of God Moves in a Mysterious Way, uh, he actually tried to drown himself um, that same week. But what kept him metaphorically above water was this idea that God is good and loving and providential. And he says, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. The trial that looks completely unredemptive, that feels agonizing, tastes completely bitter, but it will be sweet because it comes from a benevolent God's hand to the people that he absolutely loves and adores. 
So Christian, I'm wondering what portion of your life you're looking back on now and asking God, how is that redemptive? How is that redemptive? You may not get the answer. In fact, if it's a severe tragedy, if it's an incredible hardship, you probably won't see all the goodness in this life. For me, one of the most, the, the most tragic thing that's ever happened to me is uh, my sister Grace was killed in a car wreck when I was 17 and she was nine. I still can't, I'm 40 now, I still can't see the goodness in it. Some, for sure. I feel close to God. I love him in ways that I don't know that I could love him in other ways. I depend on him in ways that I wouldn't otherwise. But man, I think that could happen other ways too. <laughs> you know? I want not for my kids. I want someone to call who... who understands my upbringing and who we can just chat with. And so if you have something in your life where you look back, you're just like, I, I understand, Lord, I know you're in control, but you've kind of compartmentalized it. You kind of put it over here in your brain because like, I can trust you in all these areas, but this one, I don't know what to do with, so I'm going to slide it over here. I'm going to put it in the closet and I'm not going to think about it or talk about it and I'll figure it out one day. Um, that makes sense. It really does sometimes. But I wonder if that's causing you some kind of fear and anxiety to trust what's coming around the corner. The Lord doesn't want us to be scared about a potential bitter province that comes around the corner. It causes us to worry and to be anxious. My friends, we can trust our God because of what he's done for us, which we'll get to in the second portion of the psalm. But the psalm won't let us do that just yet. Thirdly, God's mysterious providence, verses 17 to 22. God's mysterious providence. Verse 17, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals, or a way that you can say that is monsters. Monstrous people are persecuting us and maligning us. And they've covered us with a shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover us? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, O God, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What are you doing, God? God, I understand it. If we bowed our hearts to the God of the Canaanites, Right? If we bowed our hearts to foreign gods and then your blessings completely left us, that makes sense because you talked about that, Lord. We get that, don't we? We get merits. We understand what it is to be good, be good, be good, and get blessings, to be faithful and to get blessings. The psalmist understands that suffering because of sin, we've already talked about it a couple weeks ago, we, under, we have categories for, for that, and the psalmist does. Uh, prophets Mo, Moses, Joshua, Isaiah, uh, Habakkuk, Hosea, and other prophets were told, that, told the people of Israel that if they bowed their knee to other so-called gods, 
that God would kick them out of the land he gifted them. But here in this text, at least from this point of view, suffering does not, become, does not come about because of sin. At least direct sin. That's what verses 20 and 21 mean. If we had forgotten the name of our God, you would have done this. We would have understand it. But Lord, we've been faithful to you. We haven't bowed our knee to Baal. And here we are. My friends, God's providence is mysterious. We can't understand it. So even fast forward to the book of Acts. Stephen is martyred. James is killed. Paul is rescued. Peter is rescued. What's going on, Lord? Your providence seems, you seem to bless people here, and you seem to hand people over to be slaughtered here. Even when people are being faithful. Stephen is a great example of this. He gets up. He gives one of the best sermons to ever record in history. And he's stoned to death. What? For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Friends, some of the worst advice I've ever gotten is this. God is not a puppeteer and we are not puppets which I agree with that, but it's given in the context of hard things in my life. It's as if God's on the trial, on the stand, and we're prosecuting him, and then we're like, okay, God, God wasn't behind this. This was Satan won this battle or something like that. But that's not how the psalmist views the actions of the Lord. It's not. We know this in part because Paul quotes this in Romans 8. So if you want to turn there with me, you can go ahead and turn there. Look at Romans 8. Paul quotes verse 22 of Psalm 44. And if you've been around Christianity for a time, you might know that Romans 8 is one of the best chapters on God's love of any other place in the Bible. And Paul, when he's writing it, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he reaches back to Psalm 44 in explaining God's love. Let's start, look at verse 27. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Real quickly, he's going back to verse 21 there, I think. For he knows the secrets of the heart. So he knows what we're feeling and we're thinking, the secret things. Verse 28, okay. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all Things. There's that phrase again, all things. You see it in 28, you see it in 32. 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, God's providence is mysterious, but it's also trustworthy. It's trustworthy because what Paul is doing, he's reaching back to Psalm 44. He's taking one of the darkest, hardest Psalms to understand for the believer. And he's bringing it into one of the most hopeful, bright chapters in the New Testament that talks about the enduring, steadfast love of God for his people through Jesus Christ. And, and when it comes to providence, check out what he's doing. Romans 8, 28, God uh, uh, all things work together for good for those who love God. Verse 32, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see what he's doing? Graciously give us all things? What are the all things? Look back to 35. The all things are tribulation. The all things are distress persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. The hard things are part of the all things. Okay, what about the evil things? Friends, God is able to hold people responsible for sin and also be sovereign. That's why he's God. And if he weren't, he wouldn't be trustworthy. It's okay to have the expectation that you're not going to see all the good of whatever hardship or tragedy or trial you're thinking of. You're not promised to see why it's good. I'm sure Paul would have preferred not to be shipwrecked or beaten or stoned. <laughs> but he can trust God because God has given him the best gift of all. His only begotten son. And then Paul says in second Corinthians that these afflictions that we're enduring are light and they're momentary. What gives Paul, how can he say that light and momentary? Well, he's got kind of the record to say stuff like that. He's been shipwrecked, abandoned, deceived, maligned, reviled, apparently needed clothes at some point, gone hungry while he's doing the Lord's work. This is not a prosperity gospel, at least in this lifetime. 
These afflictions are light and momentary, though, and his glory will be so glorious and magnificent that if we could look back in the past one day, brothers and sisters, we're in heaven, we'll see what he's doing. And if we don't get the opportunity to look back in the past, I don't think we'll care because we'll be so beheld with the glory of Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slaughtered on our behalf, the one who gave his life. That's what he says, right? So Paul says in Romans, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I can trust him because he died for me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Yes, I can believe in the Lord, though I don't know what he's doing. I know he has the power to change this thing, redirect this thing. But I trust you, Lord, because you've given me Jesus Christ. He who did not spare his own son, I can trust him because he didn't spare his son for me. So whether I'm going, whatever tribulation I'm doing, whatever disease it is, cancer, whatever it is with your kids that's so hard right now, even if it's a car wreck, we can trust God because he gave us his only begotten son. In the article I read from Benita, she says this, and yet somehow, even in those horrifying trials, God was doing something, something extraordinary, something I could have not have planned or foreseen. He was doing something in me that could not have happened any other way. It was strange and beautiful, wonderful and unexpected, the handiwork of God. Out of the most crushing pain and terrible despair, God was bringing glorious triumph. Instead of deforming me, my pain strangely deepened me. It increased my capacity for God and for joy. It made me see the world through different eyes, eyes of faith and not eyes of hopelessness. It helped me recognize that what I was going through was just a snapshot in time. One day my life will be totally transformed. Brothers and sisters, that's our hope. Totally transformed. So let's keep singing songs that relate to this. Let's lament together and move toward God together. William Cooper says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. <laughs> Lastly, in conclusion, God's loving providence. Look at 23 to 26. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why are you hiding your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust and our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Uh, this is a prayer uh, to a providential God who is a king, who is a warrior, who seems fatherly. And so the, the picture here is, is if you imagine uh, if you were a father and you're uh, in bed, and you get, uh, and, and you're waked up by someone uh, saying, hey, we need your help. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying, hey, hey, get out of your bed. <laughs> Grab your baseball bat. Do something. We're in desperate need here. He's turning to God. You see what he's doing? He turned to God at the beginning. He complains to God. 
Now he's asking God, he's making a plea, Lord, do something. You know why? Because when you know someone deeply, and especially if he's powerful enough to change the situation, you go to him like a child going to a father, except this father has all the power in the world. Friends, this power, this prayer is ultimately answered in Jesus Christ. Verse 26, rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Jesus redeemed us for the sake of his steadfast love. God kept his covenant through the Messiah. The Messiah is Jesus. And Jesus lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He was an innocent lamb that was led to the cross and slaughtered. And the witnesses saw it. And he breathed his last taken down from the cross, put in a tomb, and three days later, he rose. God is powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead. And what looked like a horrible, puzzling situation to all that were watching turned out to be the most glorious thing for his beloved. And so too, because we are God's children, if we are in Christ, even the most puzzling of circumstances are out of God's love. None of the disciples knew what was going on. This man who walked on water, this man who healed demons or healed people from demons, healed physical ailments. And then they saw him rise from the dead. So we too, sister and brother, no matter what comes our way, we have a trustworthy God because he did not spare his own son. Diseases, car wrecks, abuse, depression, anxiety, and even murder cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ. We do not know what he's doing all the time because we're not God, but he is trustworthy because he's given us Jesus Christ. And when you're in your bed and you're crying out to God and you can't figure it out, wait upon him. Think about his only begotten son given over to you like a lamb led to the slaughter. He's given us his son. He's his, his eternal son. The son was put forth for you. While the providence is puzzling and bitter, mysterious, somehow it's for your good. Of course you do not see it clearly, but you can trust it confidently because he's given you the best gift of all, Jesus Christ. Let me conclude with this quote from Elizabeth Elliot. When she discovered uh, um, Elizabeth Elliot was in the mid, 20, uh, mid to late uh, 60s, I think. Um, she was in Ecuador and she and her husband went to go with uh, four other families to be missionaries amongst an unreached people group, the Aka people in Ecuador. They weren't there very long before her husband and four other men were murdered by the very people they came to give the gospel to. And here is her reflecting on that time when she, figured, when she found out that her husband and four others were murdered. In the kitchen, we sat quietly as the reports were finished, fingering the watches and wedding rings that had been brought back, trying for the hundredth time to picture the scene which of the men watched the others fall? Which of them had time to think of his wife and children? Had one been covering the others in the treehouse and come down in an attempt to save them? Had they suffered long? The answer to these questions remained a mystery. 
This much we know. Whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. There was no question as to the present state of our loved ones. They were with Christ. So whether you're Jim Elliot, whether you're Stephen the martyr, whether you're the brother that Ray told me about in the Middle East, you are with Christ always and forever, in this life and forever. Let's pray. Lord, with eyes that can't see what you're doing, we are certainly going to judge you. And we will look back on our lives, but we will look back on our lives in vanity. If we do not understand that you are for us, even when it feels like you've forgotten us. Oh Lord, anchor this truth deep in our souls that we might come out of the miry pit, that we might come out of despondency. Oh Lord, for any brother or sister is in a dark place right now, oh Lord, show them Jesus Christ. Open up their eyes to behold his beauty and his glory and his tender love and care for them. Oh Lord, you do that now. And cause us to be a people that care for one another, mostly by giving, by giving one another Jesus. Remind us of these truths as we sing in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.